It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to American Medicine Today, presented by the Bonatti Spine Institute. Featuring internationally acclaimed inventor of the Bonatti Spine Procedures, Alfred Bonatti, MD. Here are your hosts, Kimberly Bermel Bonatti and co-host Ethan Euchre and Jeff Wagstaff. Thank you for listening to American Medicine Today. I am Kimberly Bonatti alongside Ethan Euchre. Happy to be here. Jeff Wagstaff. Hello, everyone. Hello, and world-renowned orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Alfred Bonatti. Hi. We have an exciting show lined up. You'll hear a story of recovery. We're going to talk about finally breaking up big healthcare insurance companies. And then, of course, you'll hear what's new in American medicine today. Most people associate addiction with substances like drugs and alcohol, but there's a lesser known form of addiction that affects thousands. And joining us to discuss her lifelong battle with food addiction is Emily Bowler, author of the new book, Starved to Obesity, My Journey Out of Food Addiction and How You Can escape it too. Thank you for being with us, Emily. My pleasure. It's a pleasure to be here today. Now, Emily, you had a pretty interesting life. You were a chubby child who became anorexic in your teens, then flipped again and became obese until the age of 47. Tell us about your tumultuous relationship with food and what made you decide to take your life back. Well, you know, when I was chubby as a child, in when I was six years old, my mother put me on my first restrictive diet. And, of course, that didn't work. I, you know, would find ways of sneaking food to eat. Chubby in childhood, I called every name in the book, of course, on the playground. So to survive, I knew if I was going to survive high school, I had to just quit eating. So that's how I became too thin, went the other way, anorexic, not knowing that there were some issues down inside of me, too, that needed to be dealt with. My parents back in the 70s, you know, I'm from a farm community just swept everything under the rug, got married, had three children in three years and three babies. Wow. And my way of coping with the stress of, you know, all night feedings and three babies was yeah. to eat. Mm-hmm. And so I actually, by the time I was 38 years old, I had 100 pounds of excess weight on my body. And um, I had a heart cath at age 32, uh, not 32, 42, because... I was having chest pain, and I was diagnosed with coronary artery disease. But yet I was so addicted to food. Even though I knew I needed to lose weight, I was so addicted that I just kept eating. Finally, at age 47, my blood pressure was through the roof, and um, I knew I was sitting on a time bomb for a stroke or a heart attack. And I made the decision, I actually made it into an art exhibit, of losing weight. And I documented it online. And I, within 10 months, I lost 100 pounds by eating a nutrient-rich, plant-based diet. And it's a lifestyle that I continue to eat to this day. It's been 11 years. I've kept the weight off. For the most part, there was a little season there when I had a sun dye that I put a little bit back on. But yeah. I have, this is a way I eat for the rest of my life. And it's the nutrients. Dr. Furman, who wrote the book, Eat to Live. I think we've had him on the show, actually. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, yes. He has actually, you know, the toxins that build up in the body from the lack of micronutrients in our diet causes cravings. They're just as powerful as the craving uh, of cocaine and that drug addicts have. And so, you know, we, we say on, you know, January 1st, I'm not going to eat any more chocolate or cookies. But within two days, we're back to eating it. It's yes. just those cravings. If we're eating a low micronutrient mm-hmm. diet, we're going to get these cravings. They're just mm-hmm. overpowering us. And that's the reason a lot of us are going around carrying 100 pounds. We just are starved. That's why I wrote the book, Starved mm-hmm. to Obesity, because we don't realize it, but we're very, very malnourished. But society tends to say, and, I, and I'm just going to play devil's advocate. It's not that I believe it, but people say there's no way someone can be addicted to food. They, they just need to stop eating so much. Don't eat so much, right. Yeah, but yeah. that isn't necessarily correct, right? No, especially if you have a history. The younger you are exposed to dieting even, if you have a history of always needing to lose weight and always needing to restrict your calories and restrict your food, mm-hmm. um, it tends to boomerang even more so of the whole addictive, you know, when you have just one bite of an addictive substance, it activates the dopamine in the brain and you mm-hmm. just have to eat more and more and more. So it's a real addiction. Um, it's not something that people are making up in their minds. It's a biological and a psychological, both combined, addiction that in order to stay free from it is just abstinence from the foods that are low in micronutrients. Emily, what worked for you when you kind of broke that bond with food? What worked for you? What was the breakthrough that allowed you to have the success that you've experienced? I think, you know, I realized the first month I started eating this way, it was the first time in my entire life that my focus was on eating instead of not eating. I was always on a diet. Okay, can't have this. You can't eat that. You need to restrict that. You need to count your calories or measure your food. This is the first time in my life I did not have to measure my food, I, and I could eat all these colorful fruits and vegetables and beans, and my focus was on getting as many nutrients as I could every day into my body, and within one month, just one month, not only did I lose 20 pounds that first month, I lowered my triglycerides by 102 points, and I lowered my cholesterol by 70 points just by focusing on eating instead of not eating. So that for me, that's what just broke broke loose why this is something I can do for the rest of my life because I get to eat instead of not eat. One last question, Emily, a thought occurred to me. Did you just change your diet or did you add exercise or any sort of other regimen into what you were doing? Actually, you know, I was always walking a little bit, even when I was 100 pounds overweight. I would walk as much as I could that I was able. But I walked about an hour a day just because I like to get out in the fresh air. But about four months into it, I felt so much better. I'd lost about 40 pounds by that time that I started working out on equipment at the Y, like EFX machines, and mm-hmm. I started you know, lifting it's weights. It's not because I had to, but I just felt so much better. I wanted to. Just tell me what type of food you ate. <laughs> Fruits and vegetables. That's it? Plant-based. 
No steaks, oh, Doc. No. I, make, I make smoothies out of kale and blueberries and a banana and almonds and almond milk mm. in a blender and blend that up and very, very taste. You know, it has a, a really good flavor. I'll have a smoothie for breakfast, a large salad. Dr. Furman, he says, you know, the salad is the main dish. And we're not talking about a little bowl of iceberg lettuce. Right. I'm talking about a big salad with chopped up romaine and tomatoes and carrots and onions and all kinds of edamame beans. I I think Colorful. I think we want your cookbook, or at least I do, because mm. you're making me very yeah. hungry talking well, I about have it. Five really basic <laughs> recipes in my mm-hmm. book for someone just getting started. Yes. All right. All right. Thank you so much. Unfortunately, we're out of time, but thank you for sharing your wisdom on how to uh, combat obesity. Emily Bowler, author of the new book "Starve to Obesity: My Journey Out of Food Addiction and How You Can Escape It Too." Thanks, Emily. My pleasure. Mm-hmm. Take have care. Have a great day. Bye bye. Goodbye. Goodbye. Yeah. Make sure you stay tuned. Coming up after the break, a story every cup. You're listening to American Medicine Today, presented by the Bonatti Spine Institute, featuring internationally acclaimed inventor of the Bonatti Spine Procedures, Alfred Bonatti, MD. Once again, your host, Kimberly Bermel Bonatti, and co-host Ethan Euchre and Jeff Wagstaff. Thank you so much for listening to American Medicine Today. I am Kimberly Bonatti, along with Ethan Euchre. Glad to be here. Jeff Wagstaff. Hello, everyone. Thank and you for listening. Absolutely. And world-renowned orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Alfred Bonatti, thank you for sharing your time. Thank you for having me. So for those of you that have suffered some sort of accident or if you've just always been very hard on your body and all of a sudden um, you are having pains that don't go away, you've tried conservative type treatments to no avail, you don't have to deal with that lingering pain. And don't accept people telling you you have to take a painkiller to get out of pain or that nothing can be done or we can only rip you open through the front and through the back and remove organs to get to the problem because that's not the case. And if people are telling you that they need to slice you open from the front to reach the back of your spine, that also is very odd. Leave the hardware in your garage and use it for yard work. Leave those items out of your spine. Now, it's one thing for me to talk about it, but it's another when you hear from the patient themselves. It's today's Back to Life segment, a story of recovery. We will talk to a patient of the Bonatti Spine Institute who went from living a life restricted by pain and discomfort through their journey of finding the Bonatti Spine Institute and now living pain-free. Well, I am pleased to introduce to the program Travis Mask from Chipley, Florida. So is that by the panhandle? I'm in the panhandle up near Panama City, Florida. You, you are, okay, because it had mentioned that you're one hour behind, so we were just discussing. Um, how did you come to be in pain? Were you involved in an accident, or was this just degenerative in nature? I was actually in the military, and uh, while in the Army, they were doing PT one morning, and they had us running up the side of a, a hill that had been paved up that hill, and they had five-gallon water cans strapped to our backs, and we were running up the hill and then back down the hill for okay. PT. And coming back down the hill, my feet hit the ice on the hill, and they slid out from under me, and I mm-hmm. fell pretty hard on my rear end. Yeah. And I felt like what felt like a cattle iron touching my back then. You could feel the burn in it. But uh, being, being in the infantry, you can't go to sick call or nothing like that because then you're going to be belittled and made fun of. So mm-hmm. I never went to sick call for it, never 
messed with it, and then over the years, just progressively got worse and worse. I can't even imagine. So just to kind of save face, so to speak, um, things compounded before you you really thought about trying to remedy the pain. Yes, ma'am. It got to a point that wow. I helped coach my my youngest son's football team, and I'm also the chaplain for the organization okay. that is in the football league. Okay. And it got to a point that I couldn't even stay out of practice the whole time. Oh and that goodness. was only two hours. Wow. And where, I mean, just a normal fall is enough to, to cause problems, let alone falling on ice, I, I'm sure, had to make it that much worse. Um, where on your body did you feel the pain? It was down in my lower back, just about my belt line. Okay. And it always stayed in that area, or did anything radiate anywhere else? For a while, it stayed in that area, and then over time, it started radiating down my right leg. Okay. Um, did you have weakness in that leg at all as a result? After it got to burning so bad and after being on it for a while, then it would start to get a little weak. Okay. But people on the outside, I wouldn't let them see how bad it was bothering me. Yeah. And uh, But it would get to the point to where I'd have to find some place to sit down. And what did you do at that point to try and seek relief? I had been to chiropractors. I had went to uh, other spine surgeons. I had been to therapy, pain management, all kind of stuff. And pain management, they're, they're quick to give you pills, and they'll throw you on a pain pill and have you take that pain pill and It'll put you to sleep when you wake back up. Here's the pain again. Mm-hmm. Yep. Pain management is just that. How can we manage the pain but never eradicating it? And like exactly. you like you said about not mm-hmm. really going and seeking treatment because of the way people could make fun of you, problems compound over time. So when you're just masking a pain, the problems still continue, and sometimes we notice people's gait getting thrown off because they're trying to alleviate the pain they feel by kind of throwing their body out of kilter. So um, problems compound even though you're taking uh, pain meds. How is yeah. it that you got from Panama City, Florida, uh, Chipley, Florida, all the way to Hudson? My mom sent me a link through Facebook Messenger, and she says, hey, you need to check these people out. Okay. She said, uh, I've done some research on them, and they seem to be pretty good. And uh, I'd been to a doctor down in Panama City that said that he didn't mind doing surgery, but he was going to have to open me up, and he was going to, and it was going to be quite a process. And I said, uh, I'm not ready to do that. I said, I ain't going to be down for months and months where I can't even walk. I said, uh, mm-hmm. when I get to where I can't walk, I'll come back to see you then. So once she sent this link to me. I listened to it, listened to a bunch of the testimonials, looked at the uh, process, and I said, well, I said, I don't guess I have nothing to lose. Let's try it out and see where it is. So I asked my son and my mother if they wanted to go with me. We all went down there and went in for that consultation. And that consultation was amazing. I walked through the door and the the concierge says, are you Travis? And I said, yes. And I, I was really taking it they knew my name before I even really walked in the building. Mm-hmm. And what was that in-person evaluation like um, when you were there talking to the doctor? Did you feel like they understood where your pain was stemming from? 
They did. It, it was amazing. The doctor and the nurse, after taking all my scans and doing all that they had to do to see where the problem was and, and what was going on, they took me into a room and explained the entire surgery. They explained everything there was to explain in terms that I can understand. I don't have a doctorate degree, and I don't have a degree at all. I'm a high school graduate that's had some college, but I don't understand all those medical terms that a lot of people use. Yes. And they broke down into layman's terms where I could understand every single thing. They made illustrations, and it was it was just wonderful. <laughs> and did they mention to you something called conscious IV sedation, where it's they not— They did. And so um, you're always given the option to watch. So my first question is, did you watch at all? I did not. Or okay. if I did, I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. And, you know, conscious IV sedation affects everyone differently. Some remember every detail, some don't. But um, at some point during the surgery, you are communicating with the surgeon back and forth to make sure that they've eradicated the source of the pain. Now, um, you said you don't remember a ton of detail, but you do remember being conscious enough where Dr. Liss was um, doing some of the procedure on you. Um, could you feel pain, or how, how was that experience for you? That was that was different. I got I woke or came to my senses enough to know that uh, he had he was in there with a chisel and a hammer, and you could hear him going tick 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 tick. And I was sitting here going, "Oh my goodness!" So, so I said, "Ooh," <laughs> and the nurse rubbed me on the head. She said, "Travis, are you okay?" I said, yeah, I'm fine. Now, pain, I didn't have no pain with him doing it. Mm -hmm. But uh, but you knew what was going on. You, you know that sound of a hammer and chisel hitting <laughs> each other. <laughs> and when did you notice the relief of the pain that brought you in? Because there is always surgical site pain because they're still making an incision. But that agonizing pain that was preventing you from doing things and, and causing some weakness in your leg, when did you notice those problems vanish? Well, they during the surgery, they had me laying belly down on the bed okay. and had my knees up under me. Okay. And I knew, I said, when they put me in the position, I said, when I get up out of this bed, I ain't going to be so stoked up I can't move. And that's typically the way it is. Mm -hmm. So they told me, they said, when they got done, they got me to where I could. They said, okay, I want you to stand up and get ready to move. And it was just a few minutes after surgery that they said, all right, we want you to get up. Let's move to this door. Let's walk to this door. And the minute I stood up out of bed, I knew that something was different because I was not stoved up. So I shifted my weight from my right foot to my left foot, and I said, oh, my goodness, this is amazing. And it was instantaneous. Yep. Those are the type of results that we get at the Benati Spine Institute. So based on your results, if you saw somebody struggling in pain and places telling um, those individuals you need these invasive procedures, would you feel confident enough to direct them to Benati for an alternative? I have been told all my friends and my family, the ones that I know has had back and neck problems, mm -hmm. that they need to come down there and speak with you. I've even had one of my family members already call down there and uh, talk, seeing if they could get an appointment scheduled. And I don't know what the outcome of that's been so mm -hmm. far, but uh, 
they were already calling and finding out because they've been so amazed at my recovery. Aww. Well, I am glad you are on the path to recovery and doing so well. Make sure you stay in contact with us and keep us updated on Facebook. We always like to see pictures of the fun activities that you'll be back to doing. Yes, ma'am. I added some pictures onto the, the site the other day of me being back in the pulpit at the church. I'm the pastor of our church, and nice. within two weeks, I'm back up there preaching again, and I could have been up there before then, but I didn't want to put more on me than what I could handle. Oh, Good perfect. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one thing that always strikes me is people find us after they're in agonizing pain for a while, but we've been here for over 35 years, so thank you for taking the time out of your day to share your story. Thanks, Travis. Yes, thank you. Have Take a great care. one. Bye-bye. Make sure you stay tuned. Coming up after the break, we're going to talk about finally breaking up big health care insurance. You're listening to American Medicine Today, presented by the Bonatti Spine Institute, featuring internationally acclaimed inventor of the Bonatti Spine Procedures, Alfred Bonatti, MD. Once again, your host, Kimberly Bermel Bonatti, and co-host Ethan Euchre and Jeff Wagstaff. Thank you for listening to American Medicine today. We always have a great time with our friends Ethan Euchre. Absolutely. Jeff Wagstaff. Hello. And world-renowned orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Alfred Benatti. So with practically no competition in many parts of the country, the CEOs of the largest health insurers in America are reaping huge paychecks on the backs of patients. So it's time to break up the big health care insurance companies? I say yes. Mm -hmm. Well, joining us to discuss is Andrew Langer, president of the Institute for Liberty and author of two recent articles in Town Hall concerning this very topic. Thank you for being with us, Andrew. Great to be on. I I am so happy you're on talking about this because I've always thought that insurance companies are are becoming monopolies. Well, here's the interesting thing, right? We are we are in a situation that is very similar to what happened just after the 2008 financial meltdown, mm-hmm. uh, in which we had situations in which there were banks that were supposedly too big to fail. Uh, Congress passed a, p- a series of uh, pieces of legislation which were supposed to prevent those banks from getting too big to fail, and mm-hmm. and as we all predicted, it just made those banks even too bigger to fail, for lack of a better sort of phrase in all this. Yes. And in the same way, with the passage of the Affordable Care Act, you know, the same things happened in mm-hmm. which big insurance was in the room helping to write the legislation. Uh, they knew that uh, this was a transitional phase between a more market-oriented approach to health care and what is eventually their thinking is going to be a single-payer nationalized health care system. So they're trying to get whatever they can out of it. And the result is, uh, smaller, uh, more agile or smaller uh, agile insurance companies couldn't compete with the mandates that were being imposed on them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they fell by the wayside or were gobbled up. And we had this consolidation. We have folks leaving exchanges and we have folks getting consolidated. And that leaves consumers with fewer market choices. Well, and see, one of your recent articles that Kimberly mentioned in Town Hall was titled Insurance Industry Collusion is Causing Healthcare Costs to Soar. Tell us what that means. Well, I mean, this is this is this issue. Well, it's a couple of different things, right? It, it is it, it is the issue of big insurance sort of being able to flex its market power in Congress 
Uh, in terms of trying to find ways for Congress to set price controls on things, uh, as well as in and of itself, it's just a situation where when you have fewer actors in any kind of a marketplace, when there's less competition, uh, costs are going to rise because there is no there, there are no competing forces uh, that drive these costs down. Plus, let's not forget, and, and I know you know you are all very familiar with what's happening within the medical field. My wife is a physician. Um, the, the other part of this is we have doctors that are leaving and others that are leaving the practice of medicine at an alarming rate. Mm-hmm. And when you have fewer doctors practicing medicine and you are reimbursing those doctors at lower rates for doing the same work or, or doing more work, uh, then this also serves to you know drive up uh, drive up costs for people. You know, you brought up a couple things. You talked about Congress setting prices. And then there was a question about a, these big insurance companies kind of have a, a stranglehold on the government. Well, of course they do, because they have all the lobbyists pushing their agenda. So can you really count on the Congress to really be looking out for the people? Or are they looking well, out that, to have their pocket? And, and that's just it. See, here's here's the issue where we get into. And I, I have a, you know, I, I know I, I, I do take some pot shots at, at uh, CEO compensation here. Set that aside mm-hmm. for just a second, because... I want to focus on what I call my handy guideline for for figuring out who are good actors in terms of influencing policy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what happens is that when you have – because we live in a, a society of 350 million people. There are these special interest groups. We, you know, Folks are getting paid to represent interests in D.C. I don't have any problem with that per se. The problem comes in when you have folks who are advocating – I'm sorry, my dog is barking in the background. That's when you okay. have folks advocating – for uh, uh, situations and policies that serve to not only feather their own nest, but also drive people and drive competitors out of the marketplace, that's the real problem that's at work here. Uh, and so that's the, the real issue. I, I, you know, it, it is insurance companies and big pharma, to an extent, uh, writing policies that essentially drive out competition from the marketplace, creating mandates. If, if you have an industry that is willing to take on additional mandates, um, additional rules and regulations, they're doing so because they know they can handle those rules and regulations and their competitors cannot. Well, I, I think it's very interesting what you are saying. I agree with everything that you are discussing. My problem this is uh, how you break a giant like that mm. because it's, it's not only they have control on the politics and the, and the politicians, but at the same time they enjoy a position – that is unbreakable. You cannot go ahead and, and break the system unless it's a type of a behavior from the population who goes and said, more than that, I really think physicians, they need to start to act in a different way. For example, if you start to see a company who start to create a problem, and the problem creates a, a situation where the physician needs to hire a tremendous amount of people to be able to fight the insurance company who has a battalion of people to fight the doctor. So they try to impose their might. At the same time, they try to impose their prices. So if physicians continue accepting that, you have two problems. First, you need to be very big to be able to fight the insurance company uh, or at least big enough to have a battalion of people who cost you a lot of money to be able to maintain your rights. So unless that happens, the small physicians are not going to be able to do that. 
So they are going to accept the behavior of the insurance company because that's the only thing that they can do. But the physicians in group will be represented by an association who is not American Medical Association, who is the cause of this mess because they develop a code system. They sold this to the insurance companies and the government, and now they are sitting receiving a tremendous amount of money to be able to continue exposing, exploiting these, these, these codes. Unless the physicians, one for all, they go on the other side and say, we are not going to take this insurance, and they target the insurance. If the physicians will go, every physician, the 900,000 physicians that we have in the country will go and will say, okay, we're not going to take any Blue Cross patients and target that. Once you do that, then you will have a situation that you will correct this mess. But the problem is we are not doing that. And, and, and we keep up accepting this type of a misbehavior, and we, we just cower to the behavior of the insurance companies. Mm-hmm. If you do and, that, you cannot me, break this, this big, big uh, insurance. And let, let me add to this. I mean, it, it gets exacerbated when we create policies that sort of drive the free market actors out of the marketplace. And it's something that I talk about quite a bit. In which, in which, you know, and one of the examples that I like to use is the marketplace in uh, laser eye surgery, right? Laser eye surgery for a very long time was not covered by most major insurance plans. And as a result, you know, folks were out there on the marketplace. There were the physicians who were engaging in these kinds of practices uh, were out there competing with each other. There was great research uh, that was producing innovations in terms of both safety and ease of the, the surgery itself. And as a result, a surgery that, you know, 15 years ago cost $2,500 per eye now costs $250 per eye. And the problem is that we have a a series of government policies that have been enacted that serve to uh, remove these free market impulses and create greater barriers to entry and greater restrictions. Uh, Some of this is not just federal. Some of it is state. You know, one of the things that I like to talk about in my own state of Virginia are are things like certificates of need. If you're someone who has created a new and innovative uh, medical service or medical device, uh, you want to open up an office in a particular community, you have to submit to the Virginia Board of Health a certificate of need, which is then looked at and approved by the competing medical practices in your particular community. Mm-hmm. And as you can imagine, if you've got some upstart moving into that community, uh, the, the pre-existing medical practices do not want uh, competition coming in. And so invariably, these certificates of need are rejected. And so, mm-hmm. you know, all of these things conspire. And there's a whole, I mean, we're talking from soup to nuts. I know you guys can talk at great length and probably have talked at great length about the problem we have in America of the supply of medical care, the numbers of doctors and nurses and physicians assistants, the number of, of residency spots. You know, even if we were to increase enrollment in medical schools and increase the number of medical schools, we don't have enough residency spots to train these doctors. And so we're, we really are talking about a comprehensive reform approach that has never been undertaken, but one where we have to move away from this system of consolidation, which just does not serve uh, the patients in the way that they need to be served. Yeah, I, I agree. But you know something? I think the major trouble that we have is we have no representation. 
we need to create another American Medical Association who is going to have a department that is going to tackle insurance companies and make them perform. A legal system, another department who is going to tackle the legal system and make them perform. In advances in medicine who will be sheltered and protected because that is what makes better medicine in the United States. The same thing. And, and if we can start to create and then one, one department who's going to deal with politics, we can have enough power to elect the politics that they are going to be the politicians that are going to be representing us. Otherwise, what happens, we have a problem. And this is what we need to focus on. And I don't know well, why, why we don't. Well, I mean, there are a couple of other organizations that are out there. They, they don't have the, the same kind of cachet that the AMA does. Uh, and so, you know, it's, it's a matter of like the, the American Association of Physicians and Surgeons is one that I know uh, that is doing some of this work. But you're right. I mean, again, if we're talking about competition among the big insurance companies and then the need for greater competition, uh, certainly amongst the trade, for lack of a better term, the trade associations uh, that represent uh, uh, doctors, certainly there can be greater competition in that regard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if they're representative of doctors and supposedly of the patients, they shouldn't be in the pockets of these insurance companies. So I'm glad we're discussing breaking up what I consider to be monopolies. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Andrew Langer, president of the Institute for Liberty and author of two recent articles in Town Hall about this very topic. Thanks for being on the program. Thanks, guys. Take care. You Have too. Bye bye. Make sure you stay tuned. Coming up after the break, you'll hear what's new. You're listening to American Medicine Today, presented by the Bonatti Spine Institute, featuring internationally acclaimed inventor of the Bonatti Spine Procedures, Alfred Bonatti, MD. Once again, your host, Kimberly Bermel Bonatti, and co-host Ethan Euchre and Jeff Wagstaff. We are all revved up and ready to discuss what's going on with big insurance companies. Should we rip them apart and destroy the monopoly they've become? I think so. Let's look at what's new in medicine today, featuring Alfred Benatti, MD. Yes, our friends Ethan Euchre, Jeff Wagstaff, and Doc. We're all going to discuss such an important topic. So we're jumping off, if people missed it and they're just joining us, we're jumping off of our last guest, which was uh, Andrew Langer, discussing, as Kimberly just said, breaking up these big health insurance companies that are basically monopolies Mm -hmm. and and trusts. Uh, So I know you wanted to continue talking about that, Doc. Well, I think to be able to break and insurance companies, they need to be first a type of an organization who really pay attention to the behavior of the insurance companies. One of the problems that we have is physicians don't have the time to fight with insurance companies. They need to practically obey the rules and regulations that they put, and and every rules and regulation becomes more and more difficult, and then suddenly physicians are becoming practically a typing secretaries for the insurance companies and the government, and they don't have enough time to serve the patients. Mm -hmm. And the insurance companies seem to be practicing medicine Without a license, am I right? Absolutely. Absolutely they are. And they are because the accusation of the insurance company practicing medicine without a license, they create a type of a mushroom association with other entities that they hire, the failing Mm -hmm. physicians 
in the country, yes. those individuals that they cannot perform or they don't have practices mm -hmm. or they are retired or individuals that they don't have the knowledge, right. they, they suddenly are being hired by insurance company to have the MD type of a degree on front. Right, but they're only there to create stumbling blocks. Exactly. It is individuals that they are going to now defend the insurance company to don't approve the right Mm -hmm. of the patient to be treated. Yeah, don't don't be fooled and think that they're really the patient advocates because they're not. Yeah, but they, they call they call themselves health providers for the insurance Healthcare, company. Yes. Healthcare then, providers, and, and yeah. Then, then really the, Socialized the real truth medicine is, term. is not. Mm -hmm. Now, these these companies that are being created there are, are, are really a stumbling block for treating the patients. Mm -hmm. So patients not only lose time, but at the same time they lose money and they lose opportunity to be treated yes. just because the insurance companies are creating this mess. So to fight that one, the doctors... They need to create another battalion of people yes. on the side to be able to deal with this program. Mm -hmm. And then and, and then the insurance companies also create another battalion of people on their side to fight the doctors. The amount of money that is being invested on this is so enormous, but not only they the money should be going to serve the patients. And the step to do that is just to serve the insurance company to delay treatments. Well, I mean, and we've talked about this, we touched upon it in the last segment, that huge corporations like that can really just kind of do whatever they want. And, and our guest even said that it's sort of like the, the big banks before the bubble burst in 2008, where they're too big to fail. And people just think, well, you know, they can do whatever they want. They can give out these loans, this, that, and the other thing. Well, insurance companies have just gotten so big, so powerful. They're in the pockets of uh, the lobbyists are in the pockets of all the politicians. So yeah, but, how but, are we ever as consumers and as healthcare providers and doctors like yourself and surgeons and specialists supposed to do anything about it other problem, than just problem, eat it? The problem that you are presenting in comparison with the banks is you fail. Mm. You have a crisis, a monumental worldwide crisis that created that necessity to correct this. Right. And that's why those corporations were breaking down. The problem is in medicine, we don't have that crisis at that level. Right. And, the, and, the, and to be able to create that, although the crisis is there, needs to be represented by somebody. And that somebody needs to be the physicians. The physicians, they need to put together a program where they go ahead and say, enough is enough, and we are not going to take this insurance and target the insurance. Target one insurance at a time mm -hmm. and destroy that insurance. Break them. Take Practically their take their patients out from them. And take the power back yes. from the insurance but the, companies. But the people need to speak up because they're paying high premiums. I mean, we all are. So how come these insurance companies, as big and as bold as they are, don't admit to their client what they're going to deny? They certainly don't reduce their premiums because for not they, covering services. Or, because they blame the doctors. They blame the doctors. The doctor is an easy target. Mm -hmm. They said this is unnecessary. So sure. when, when somebody comes to you and you have a, an illnesses and they say to you, they are going to treat you with a medication or with a procedure or mm -hmm. with a surgery that's unnecessary, they scare you. So the people don't react to that. Really? Because yes. if I was in pain and my insurance company told me I'm not feeling my pain, uh, you betcha I'd revolt. 
But the problem is it's not all pain. The expenses that you have is the medical mm -hmm. treatment. Now, if you have a pain, that's different. But if you have a medication that they need to de deliver to you, mm -hmm. they give you different medication because it's cheaper. You don't know that. Mm -hmm. The only way to correct this is once for all in other medical association where this medical association gathered the 900,000 physicians in the mm -hmm. country and used those physicians to break the insurance companies or the politicians that they are being practically serving the insurance companies mm -hmm. through the government, creating laws that they are not right. laws for the people. They mm -hmm. are laws for their own pocket. And that's a look at what's new in medicine today with Alfred Benatti, MD. It's part of the corruption that Trump should be uh, draining all that corruption. Mm -hmm straight out of the government. Thank you for listening and watching American Medicine today. Make sure you check us out again weekly, Saturdays nationwide on WGN America. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.